Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Our text this morning, or this evening, is uh, verses 1 through 30. I think the bulletin says 1 through 26, but let's add it on there through uh, verse 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And uh, we skip down to verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There are boundaries in our culture that we feel should not be crossed. There are racial boundaries. We say that a person's race doesn't matter, and yet if we find ourselves as the only person of a certain race in a crowd of people of another race, we are typically typically going to feel out of place, and we will probably stay away from places where we are going to be the odd man out. And there are religious boundaries. We don't feel comfortable interacting with people of other religions, especially people who are clearly outside of the realm of Christianity, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, witches, etc. I remember one time uh, being at the Huntsville Pregnancy Resource Center and being asked to talk with a gentleman who had come in who was a self-proclaimed follower of Wiccan. And the staff was intimidated to even talk with this person and, and wanted to report for me afterwards as though I had talked to an alien from another planet. And I can't understand their perspective from certain point of view. Uh, There are religious boundaries that we recognize, and there are cultural boundaries. Distinctions are made between rich and poor, and between young and old, and educated and uneducated. There are expectations that govern how we interact with others. Basically, rich people expect to be waited on and treated with respect, while the poor have no such expectations, for they are often treated as second-class citizens, And it's considered odd at the very least for various classes of people to interact as though no such differences exist. Well, the disciples, they didn't know what to say when they saw Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman. The context is that Jesus and his disciples were headed north from Judea back to Galilee and in the process went through the region of Samaria. They came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, basically the location of the ancient town of Shechem near Mount Gerizim. They were near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It was actually at Jacob's well that Jesus sat down to rest. His disciples went into Sychar to buy food. It was noon, and therefore presumably Jesus was weary, not only from having already walked a a distance, but weary from the heat of the day. This is probably the significance of our being told that it was about the sixth hour or noon. And while there, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus asks her for a drink. And it's first the woman herself who is perplexed, even shocked by his request. Her response to Jesus' request is recorded there in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman, of Samaria. And then we are given this parenthetical explanation by the Apostle John, presumably. It says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's the disciples who later express amazement as they come back from their grocery shopping in Sychar and they see Jesus talking with this woman. We read in verse 27, Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? You see, they kept their mouths shut, but in their hearts they were curious about what Jesus was doing. What he was doing was not normal. It was not expected. And the reasons were several. First, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. Last time I gave some historical background that explains why the Jews and Samaritans considered each other to be outside of the hope of salvation. 
The Samaritans insisted that the religious events that surrounded Sychar and Shechem and Mount Gerizim indicated that that was the region that God had ordained for his worship. The Samaritans offered sacrifices there at their own temple, believing that they were worshiping Jehovah. Meanwhile, the Jews of the southern kingdom centered in Jerusalem had what they claimed to be the temple endorsed by God, the temple originally built by Solomon under God's direction, and then the temple rebuilt under Ezra. The Jewish hope was in the coming Messiah, whose work was pictured by that temple's ceremonies, and whose lineage they believed would be of the tribe of Judah and of the line of David. And the Jews insisted that, like the Samaritans, their brothers of the northern kingdom uh, who had been taken into captivity were not true believers. For by setting up worship centers at Dan and Bethel, they had rejected the temple of God and the Messiah associated with it, and so were without hope of salvation. You understand that the Samaritans were even further from God in the minds of the Jews because they were a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles. And furthermore, they not only worshipped Jehovah in their own corrupt way, but also worshipped the gods of their Gentile ancestors. And so they were considered by the Judean Jews to be an impure people with a corrupt religion. And second, what Jesus was doing was not considered normal because Jews and and Samaritans naturally had religious tensions with various consequent results. First, there was actual physical violence that was done against the Samaritans by the Jews. The Jews destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. Their zeal for the house of the Lord was used to justify this physical assault. And second, our text refers to how the Jews and Samaritans had limited contact with one another. The ESV translates the second part of verse 9 this way, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, a study of the Greek indicates really a different translation is in order, and this is also confirmed from what we know of the history of that day. For you see, it wasn't that the Jews had absolutely no dealings with Samaritans. Um, We know that that's not the case, even from this very chapter where the disciples go into Sychar. It's a city, it's a Samaritan city. They go there to buy food. So the Jews were willing to engage in business with Samaritans. It wasn't that everything the Samaritans touched was considered to be unclean. But there were rules and there were cultural taboos that governed their interactions. I would say that the best way to translate verse 9b would be to say something like this, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, or Jews do not use, actually this would maybe is surprising to you, but I think this would be a legitimate translation as well, Jews do not use water vessels together with Samaritans. That's taking in the context. Per the Greek word often means to use something together with someone else. And the object that is shared is, is, is understood from the context. And so with Jesus asking for water from a Samaritan woman, it's understood that she's going to pour him some water from her pitcher, probably into another drinking vessel that she's going to provide, hence some kind of a cup from which she has drunk in the past. And this is the kind of associating together that Jews and Samaritans simply did not do. They did not share water vessels together. 
Um, and if we take the associating together in a more general sense, the idea is not that they never interacted with one another, as our translation implies, but the Jews did not associate with Samaritans on friendly terms. The Jews would engage in business, yes, but they avoided friendly interactions. There was no borrowing or lending between Jews and Samaritans. There was no asking for or accepting of any favors. So however you understand the second part of verse 9, Jesus was violating the cultural norms. He was asking the Samaritan for a favor and is presumably going to drink from the water vessel that she provides. We haven't even considered yet the detail that Jesus was interacting with a woman. The woman herself questions how it is that Jesus would ask her for a drink, a woman of Samaria, not just a Samaritan, but a woman of Samaria. And when the disciples return from their shopping, it's especially the fact that he's talking to a woman that catches their attention. And we wonder, well, what's the big deal? Well, a study of the culture back then reveals that women were often regarded as second-class citizens and even worse. Uh, There was a, a rule for rabbis of that day which went this way, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not with his own wife. And some rabbis went so far as to suggest that providing their daughters with the knowledge of the Torah, the law of God, was as inappropriate as giving them over to the worst, worst sins. I'm not going to even say what those sins were. Jesus showed that he was not governed by these religious, racial, and gender prejudices. He was willing to engage this Samaritan woman in a friendly, welcoming way. He crosses cultural boundaries. He shows that he has no fear of men. He crosses religious boundaries by his willingness to announce that she also, a Samaritan woman, can believe in him unto eternal life. This involves him crossing the boundaries of the physical realm as he engages this woman in a discussion of spiritual matters. Not only does he engage her in conversation, which was very shocking, that alone was shocking in that day, More than that, he talks with her as a candidate for salvation. He witnesses to her of spiritual matters from the clear perspective that she's not to be excluded from spiritual teaching and and even from a call to salvation. And Jesus' tactic in leading her into a spiritual conversation is to first talk about a physical matter and to use it as an analogy of something spiritual. And so he begins the conversation in the physical realm by asking her to give him a drink he soon will cross over into the spiritual realm. As we've already noted, she expressed her surprise in Jesus addressing her this way. We, we sense, though, that she's pleasantly surprised. See, see, she uh, certainly doesn't seem irritated or offended. Jesus has said something to her that has broken the ice in a way that sets the stage for them to talk. And Jesus' answer to her question is thought-provoking, and intentionally so. He doesn't really answer her question in an expected way. Notice how he actually turns things around. For originally, Jesus is the Jew expressing need and asking for a Samaritan to give him help. But as he answers her, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus turns the conversation to what God gives. He hints that he is God. 
and that what God gives is related in some way to water and to the drinking of it. He then directs our attention to the spiritual idea of God giving her living water. This living water, this, is, this, this expression is used here as a figure of speech that can really take on both a physical and spiritual meaning. On a physical level, and certainly the sense in which this woman understands the term living water is actually the translation of a Greek word that means flowing water, flowing water from a spring. Living water is distinguished from two other basic forms of water. Groundwater would be another form, which was typically found in a well. And then there would be runoff water collected from rain and stored in cisterns. This woman is stuck in the physical realm as evidenced in her response. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And we understand what she's saying when we understand the uniqueness of Jacob's well. Usually wells contain what I'm going to say, what I'm going to call stagnant water. Not that wells necessarily contain unhealthy water, but stagnant in the sense that it doesn't flow. And what we understand from her response and from actually a knowledge of the well that still exists in that region is that the water of this well is both spring-fed and a collector of rainwater. So the upper part of the well is lined, is essentially a cistern that collects rainwater, but the bottom of the well, somewhere around 75 to 100 feet down, there's water that flows in from a spring. And so this sheds light on what the woman is thinking. She's envisioning Jesus lowering some kind of bucket or vessel 100 feet down to the very bottom of this well where there is living water. And of course, she noticed that he has nothing to draw with. And she points out that the well is deep. It's 100 feet down there to where this living water flows out. But then why is it so important to get that living water anyway, she explains. The water in the upper reaches of the well is what presumably Jacob and his family and their livestock drank, and it was good enough for them. And so the woman is not convinced that this living water is that important. To her mind, it is not necessary that she have living water in order to have good water. But of course, she's only thinking in the physical realm. And so Jesus leads her along. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus is using water as an analogy to that which gives and sustains spiritual life. Think of, uh, if you think of water, water is essential to life. We can go weeks without food, but only a few days without water. It's something that has to be continually replenished. And if you run low on water, your body will crave water and you will get thirsty. And a sense of thirst is your body's way of protecting itself. Your thirst moves you to seek after this water that you need and want so that you will keep living. And both hunger and thirst for physical food and water are used in Scripture as pictures of spiritual longing. The sons of Korah testify in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, 
as a deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This longing of spiritual thirst is to be in fellowship with God. It's to know his love and ultimately to be in his presence without any threat of judgment. And this spiritual longing is is at times misdirected due to a lack of spiritual understanding of self. People don't understand their thirst. For everyone thirsts for joy and fulfillment. They want peace. But they don't understand that it is only God who can quench their thirst. And so they look to other things, earthly things, to quench their spiritual thirst. Uh, God, through Jeremiah, warned such people. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What spiritual thirst should do is drive us to seek fellowship with God. But how do we have fellowship with him? Well, what we need is righteousness. We need the forgiveness of our sins. We need to have a a perfect record before God of keeping his law. And this is something that only he can give and does give through his son Jesus in the way of faith in him. We're told in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So then what does hungering and thirsting for righteousness look like? Well, it means going to Jesus in faith, receiving him as your savior from sin, looking to him alone to give you the righteousness that is the key to having eternal life. Which is exactly why Jesus connects faith with the quenching of spiritual thirst. He will say in just a few chapters in John 6:35, "Whoever believes in me shall never thirst." In John 7, Verses 37b through 39a, it says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And you're probably familiar with the words of Isaiah 55.1, where we have this call of the gospel in terms of thirst and faith where we are told, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And in verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. So the living water that Jesus was offering is the grace and mercy and peace that belong to salvation from sin that he offers. Water stands for anything we believe can quench the thirst of our heart's desires and give us life. And the true living water is, of course, the eternal life or salvation that Christ gives through his spirit. Isaiah 44 verse 3 connects this living water and the Holy Spirit when God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Notice how Jesus and Jacob are both givers of water. But the water that comes from Jacob's well was water that you had to keep drinking over and over again. Jacob's water pertains to physical life only. The living water that Jesus offers 
is geared to quenching one's thirst for all eternity. Because it comes to us as the life of the indwelling Holy Spirit, this water remains in our souls as an ongoing source of spiritual refreshment and satisfaction. Within you, believer, is this spring of water welling up to eternal life as the Holy Spirit brings a life that never ends. This verse really teaches the the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine that we cannot lose our salvation. When the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners like you and me and spiritually raises us from the dead, the Spirit continues to infuse life into our hearts as he conforms us into the image of Christ. There's, of course, that initial quenching of thirst. And the Holy Spirit gives us faith in Christ and we go to him and, and seek forgiveness from him and he grants it to us in the gospel. But then he continues his work. He sustains your faith. He continues to sanctify you by a mighty work within you as he conforms your mind and your desires and your will to Christ's will. And eventually on the day of your death or at the Lord's return, this spring of water will finally wash away all of your sin and corruption as you are ushered into the glories of heaven. And notice that eternal life is not just life in heaven. It's a life that begins with the new birth, but then goes on forever. It's ours through the Spirit as he works repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in our hearts. This is a, this is a water that continues to, to bubble forth and meets the deepest needs of your heart. And so in some, this living water that Jesus is talking about is eternal life through faith in him wrought by the Holy Spirit. But we see that the Samaritan woman there in verse 15 is still stuck in the physical realm. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. That, that Jesus is, is talking about salvation from sin is confirmed all the more when Jesus now directs her attention to his knowledge of her sinful life. He confronts her sin in a roundabout way, and the goal is that she will thirst for the water that Jesus is offering. All she's concerned about is having to go back to that well over and over again, and that would be great if she could have this water that, 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 that takes away this workload from her. But no, she needs to have this thirst for, for the water that Jesus is offering, and yet for that to happen, she needs to feel the guilt of her sin. She needs to feel the need for a Savior. And so Jesus tells her to go get her husband and bring him. And she answers him, I have no husband. At this point, she's honest enough to admit that the man that she is living with is not her husband. We can point out that she could have lied to keep up appearances. At the same time, she's also not openly admitting her sin. She's answering Jesus' question in a way that doesn't expose her sin to him, while at the same time telling the truth, yes, but not the whole truth. Meanwhile, Jesus, as the divine Son of God, knows all about her, and he addresses with her with words that must have shocked her soul. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And notice how she responds immediately, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And by telling him that she perceives he is a prophet, she's admitting that what he has said is true. And she's beginning to understand that he must be from God to know what only God could know. It's worth meditating on the significance of what she goes on to say after admitting he's a prophet. She 
turns to the subject of the age-old question between the Jews and Samaritans over where true worship is to be offered. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I think it's worth thinking about meditating on the different scenarios that could be at play here as she, that would explain her leading the conversation in this direction. For it strikes us odd, like why would she suddenly be talking about the, where they are to worship? Well, first, she could be evading the issue of her sin. She could be trying to direct Jesus' attention from her sin and living unmarried with the man, and so she's trying to draw Jesus into a theological controversy in order to get the attention off of herself. That could very easily be what's going on, as it is a common response of sinners who are having their sins exposed to try to divert attention elsewhere. It's part of our sinfulness that we want to deny our sin. We want to cover up our sin. We want to direct attention away from our sin. Another possibility is that she genuinely wants to hear this prophet's answer to this age-old controversy between their peoples. She's confident that he's a real prophet and as such has the truth, and she wants to find out the answer once and for all. And it's amazing that she would be willing to let a Jew decide this question, but since she is convinced he is a real prophet, she expects him to tell the truth at all costs. But This would indicate, too, that she's really not thinking spiritually about herself and her own needs quite yet. It may be that she has an agenda to protect her religion as her source of peace for the future. She wants to hold on to her Samaritan religion to calm her sense of guilt. She's convinced that this prophet who supernaturally knows her is going to know the truth. Uh, She probably thinks she's right about where God is to be worshipped, that he's to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans claim, and she thinks that he's going to confirm her faith. And if this true prophet will admit the legitimacy of Samaritan worship, then she can rest in her religion to give her favor with God. Another possibility is that she is sensing she needs more than what her current religiousness has given her, and she's genuinely wanting to know what she should do. Knowing Jesus is a prophet, she's willing to follow his guidance. And if he says that she needs to go to Jerusalem, she will do it. If he confirms her Samaritan religion, all the better. She's not ready to put her faith in him, but at least willing to put her faith in his advice. Perhaps she's questioning his motives. She has sensed goodwill on his part toward her. He has offered her water unto eternal life. He has indicated he is a prophet by his supernatural knowledge, but he is a Jew. Is he really going to help her? Does he have any light and hope for a Samaritan? Has he forgotten what Jews believe about the Samaritan religion and the people who follow it? What about the fact that Jews do not think Samaritans can be saved? Jesus answers her question in a way designed to turn her faith away from external religion and, 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 and uh, concerned with ceremonies at a temple and to turn her faith toward him. The heart of his instruction to her is that God is spirit. Because God is invisible to our human eyes, he is not to be worshipped with images. Indeed, we have to be careful that any earthly thing that is associated with his worship be something that he has approved as part of his worship, and that even then we don't make those earthly things what we worship. And so, yes, God did ordain the temple and those earthly ceremonies for his worship, but 
Worship was never meant to be hampered by or focused on the physical. The earthly temple was meant to inspire worship of the heart toward an invisible God. And so Jesus states the matter this way. We are to worship the Father in spirit. And worship is also to be in truth, which means that it is to be exactly in line with what the true God wants. Worship as he has prescribed, and thus worship that is in line with what he has revealed in his word about himself. Ultimately, the truth of God is revealed through Jesus, the word. Right? That's how John starts out his gospel with the understanding that Jesus is the revelation of God, which would mean there's no true worship of God that leaves out Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was no true worship of God without a knowledge of God's plan of salvation in the coming Messiah. God's worship has always been centered in the atonement that he makes for our sins by his grace through the Messiah that he will provide for us. And with the Messiah's coming in the person of Jesus, the worship of God is now centered in a celebration of God's grace to us in Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, even to the death of the cross for us. And so the Samaritan woman is being told here by Jesus that she is to worship God from the heart and in a way that lines up with the truth of who God is. She's to be seeking the truth from God, and she agrees and rightly points to the coming of the Messiah and how when he comes, he will tell them all things. So she believes the coming Messiah has the truth of which Jesus is speaking. And it's at this point that Jesus circles around and closes the gap. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, I'm the one who brings God's truth. I am the revelation of God. And if you want to worship God rightly, then you must know me. Where you worship is not as important as who you worship. At this point, the disciples came back and the woman leaves. Though she came to the well for the purpose of drawing water, it seems that she leaves with other things on her mind as she leaves her water jar there. She was determined to tell the people of her town about Jesus. And her testimony was that he was able to tell her all that she ever did. We see that it was his, his omniscience, his knowledge of all things that struck a note with her. Spiritual interest is clearly being developed in her mind as she raises the question to her friends and neighbors, can this be the Christ? And the result was that the Samaritan people of Sychar came out to see him. As we close this evening, take note of the fact that Jesus is clearly crossing the boundaries of culture and religion in order to witness to Samaritans. It might be argued that they're not quite Gentiles because they could claim Abraham in their ancestry. At the same time, they were outside of the regular body of the Jewish people. Jesus is crossing ethnic and religious boundaries and proclaiming himself to these Samaritans whom many, uh, of whom many believed in him. He's proving the validity of the claim that he had come to save the world. He was not an exclusive savior of Jews, but of sinners of all types and breeds. The gospel of salvation by grace clearly stands out in how it didn't matter that this woman had lived in obvious sin. Now granted, some of her husbands, of these five husbands may have died, but likely there were divorces involved here, perhaps due to her own sexual immorality 
After all, she was not averse to living with a man outside of marriage. You notice how Jesus leads this sinner to salvation, gently but truthfully, engaging her in a conversation that was geared to get her to think about spiritual matters and specifically about her own sin. For it is when you and I feel the guilt of our sin that we thirst for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you, in your thirst, seek him and believe upon him, he quenches your thirst. For the salvation that he gives is like water that is welling up within us to provide this eternal life of fellowship with God that never ends. Peace with God is what you and I ultimately crave and what Jesus alone provides to our fullest satisfaction. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this living water that you provide through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for how the, our, our physical craving for water is but an analogy to the spiritual craving uh, for fellowship with you, for peace, for joy that you alone can give. Father, we thank you that Jesus quenches our thirst as he grants us salvation through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for working within us thirst that recognizes the guilt of our sin, the need for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that like the Lord Jesus, we would be willing to cross any of the cultural and racial boundaries, religious boundaries that, that separate people as we bring to them the one Savior of the world. Father, we pray that we would be bold, that we would be willing to set aside uh, prejudices that certainly are not compatible with the gospel. Lord, we thank you that your salvation, this living water, is, is for men and women, boys and girls, for people of all races throughout the world. And uh, Father, may we be witnesses of uh, the Lord Jesus, and may you use us to draw many to him that their thirst may be quenched. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.